This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Psalm 41. I like a good book end, and I like it when a good book ends. Let me explain. I have multiple book ends in my study at home. There is a proper set made of wood and iron, another that is a miniature statue of an elk, and then I have some makeshift book ends, like a soccer ball that my championship girls team gave me one year. Or, um, this won't shock many of you, but there are certain busts of hymn writers that are scattered through my, uh, my study. A silver shofar that my grandparents gave me when we were together in Israel one year. And my favorite is probably a Charles Spurgeon bobblehead. <laughs> I like a good bookend. And I also like it when a good book ends. I love how C.S. Lewis concludes The Last Battle. If you've not read that, I'm going to read you the final sentence. He writes, All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The first book I can remember finishing or the end of it is Where the Red Fern Grows with old Dan and little Anne. I won't spoil that for any of the children of the school system. My, my favorite ending is uh, to a book called Jaber Crow by my favorite author, Wendell Berry. And the final scene is, is this collision of beauty and sadness and, and life and loss. Um, and I love where book one of the Psalms ends with a wonderful bookend. Psalm 1 and Psalm 41 are bookends of the first collection of the Psalms in the Bible. For those of you not familiar with how the Psalms are arranged, I want to show you. If you look at the, at the bottom of chapter 41, what are the, there's a couple of words you see at the very end there. Somebody read it out loud when you see it. Amen. Okay, yes, 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 but not the amen and the amen. Just after that, what, what words do you read? Book two. What does that tell us? Well, book one is over. So I've got this chart for you uh, to explain how the Psalms are arranged. Psalm 1 to 41 is book one. Book two includes chapters 42 to 72. Book three, Psalms 73 to 89. Book four is chapters 90 to 106. Book five is comprised of Psalm 107 to 150. So you can see we've still got a long way to go. Each section ends with this crescendo of praise, and that's where we've arrived at here with Psalm 41. With the first of those crescendos, of course, the great one is Psalm 150, an entire chapter dedicated to the praise of God, or a doxology. It's been our tradition over the summers to spend time in the Psalms, and as we come to the conclusion of our study today, I was reminded of our first Sunday, the first Sunday of June, and in that sermon, I read a quote by Charles Spurgeon that I thought was an incredibly helpful way 
as we think about the Psalms, to shape our time in them, as we've journeyed through these 11 chapters, he wrote, More and more is the conviction forced upon my heart that every man must travel the territory of the Psalms himself if he is to know what a good land they are. They flow with milk and honey, but not to strangers. They are only fertile to lovers of their hills and vales. None but the Holy Spirit can give a man the key to the treasury of David. Happy is he who for himself knows the secret of the Psalms. I pray as we've traveled the territory of the Psalms this summer that you have come to know for yourself what a good land they are, that you've tasted the honey of God's word and have come to love it more. And I pray that the Holy Spirit has unlocked certain truths and wonders from the treasure chest of this book. And I hope you have seen and savored Christ in the Psalms. Um, Psalm 41 is a good bookend and a good end to the first collection of Psalms. Here we find a wonderful summary of the some of the major themes introduced at the very beginning of the Psalter, as well as a crescendo of praise to God who has been present in every season of the soul. Here we see the promise of blessing, the reality of testing, and the God who leads his people, goes before them, hymns them in before and behind every step of the way. I've given this chapter and uh, this sermon a title that I I hope it's not too presumptuous, but articulates the heart of what I see here. I've called it the last amen of the first book's end. And in this final song, we see first a picture of blessedness. Second, the, present, the presence of brokenness. And third, a doxology of confidence. So let me encourage you, if you would, to stand your feet as we read from God's holy and inerrant word. These words are unlike any of the other words that we hear today. These are God's very words, meant to bring us life in his name. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, 
from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? The first section of verses presents this picture of blessedness, verses 1 through 3. The psalm opens with a benediction, a blessing spoken over the people of God. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. This is an incredibly interesting phrase that I want us to think about together. There are two other psalms that begin with these words, and each of them are important in helping us discern what it is to be a person who is blessed. Another word to translate that word is happy. So to be a person who is happy, but not just general run-of-the-mill happiness. This is deep happiness, delight in God. Psalm 1 starts all of this singing by saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, this picture of blessedness begins with an open Bible and an open heart to receive the word of God. The next psalm that starts with the same phrase is 32, which says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered. There we learn that blessedness is the state of having a right relationship with God through the forgiveness of sins. And so, looking at these things side by side, the blessed person of Psalm 1 is meditating on the Word, delighting in the truth. Psalm 32 is the person who is blessed by being convinced their sins are forgiven. Here comes Psalm 41, introducing some intentional action that accompanies the blessed life. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Notice it's not the poor themselves that God says are blessed here in this place of Scripture, but the one who considers the poor or cares for the poor or even make wise the poor, it can be translated. The phrase carries the idea of the blessed person looks beyond just their own self-interest and seriously gives attention and compassion to those who are in need. Now, the word poor can include those who lack financial provision. Proverbs 19.17 has words to say about that. However, the word poor also has a much wider range than just financial poverty. The Old Testament uses this word in many ways. It can be translated weak very often, or low, or helpless, or even depressed. Of course, we use the word poor that way too. We say, oh, that poor guy. Or if your, kid, if your kid's soccer team is getting demolished, you say, oh, those poor kids. We don't mean they don't have any money, though they don't. <laughs> but what we mean is they're just poor in spirit. Jesus explains this well in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so this opening phrase is a blessing spoken over those who seriously consider and act in compassion toward those who are poor in spirit, poor in health, low in status in any way. Most scholars 
seem to think David is reflecting on his current situation as he sings of need of help. Uh, he's, he knows that God will come to his aid in the same way that he has demonstrated help to others. These opening few verses contain a laundry list of remarkable ways the Lord will act toward those who are compassionate in considering the weak, the vulnerable, and those in need. Let's look at these. First, we learn in verse 1, the Lord will deliver in the day of trouble. Even how this is phrased is something we want to keep in our thoughts as we move forward. The picture of blessedness is not the absence of trouble, rather deliverance through it. It's important to notice that the blessed person is not spared from days filled with trouble, as is the teaching of some, but assures you that in the day of trouble, God will be with you. The Lord is your deliverance. We saw this in Psalm 40 as David testified of the ways that God had saved him from untold troubles and how God reached into his hopeless situation and lifted him up from the pit that he was in. The Lord will deliver his people in trouble as we seek to help alleviate the trouble and despair of those around us. Second, the Lord will protect from enemies. In verse 2, we note there is the presence of enemies. Enemies are never absent in the Psalms. There always seems to be these uh, troublemakers on the horizon who threaten to attack and bark different kinds of malicious things toward the people of God. These opening verses are a lot like the book of Proverbs. They are wisdom sayings telling us that God's disposition toward his people is to protect and keep them alive. Notice it's, it's not that they will never die, but they will not be put to death by the will of their enemies. Why is that true? Because the will of God supersedes the greatest will of our enemies. And finally, the Lord will sustain in sickness. Sickness may come to the life of this blessed person, but even there God will sustain him. The King James Version translates this passage in a wonderfully poetic way. It says, the Lord will make all his bed in his sickness. Uh, I just love that, that God will make our bed. He's not detached from the suffering of his people. He's right there caring for our every need. Of course, as we think about the compassion of God that this passage is calling us to think of, and also to demonstrate in our lives as his people, we think first about the compassion God has shown us in Christ. Paul tells us how Jesus considered, let's think about that word, Jesus considered us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, as he writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, the richness there has nothing to do with the fleeting treasures of this world, but the riches of Christ that are now ours. In Romans 5.8, Paul explains, while we were still weak, same word, poor, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. And through the cross, Jesus has delivered us from the most terrible trouble of our sin. At the cross, Christ crushed the greatest enemy 
the enemies of sin and Satan and death. Through his resurrection, the Lord has secured the promise that he will sustain and restore, not only in this life, but even through death, he will sustain and restore his people to eternal life. So I want us to pause for a moment and consider the portrait of this blessed person. And there are two truths I want to highlight. First is this. God wants the heart of his people to beat with the same compassion as his does. The heart of God is toward the lowly, the poor, the weak, the outcast, the needy. And he doesn't get tired of them. His heart goes to them. James 1.27 tells us that our lives should follow the life of Jesus, the compassion that God demonstrates. And so just a, one brief searching question. Does your heart move with compassion to people when they are in need, particularly to the people of God, even in this church? Things are really easy just in theory. They become much harder when they have a name and a face and nearness to it. Second, These verses prompt us to think back over our own lives and remember how we've seen these truths play out in the days of trouble that we've already endured. And hasn't the Lord delivered you, protected you, sustained you? Blessedness is not the absence of brokenness. It's the caring, attending presence of God in it. So first, we begin with a picture of blessedness. What we find in verses 4 through 9 is the presence of brokenness. The presence of brokenness. As we reach this point in the text, I want to take a quick detour and teach you of a way that is uh, a way of writing that is used throughout the Bible, including Psalm 41. The literary term for the way of writing found here is chiasm. That's the term for it, chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. And uh, chiasm has been used in well-crafted poetry and storytelling for thousands of years. Chiasm is basically the presentation of certain ideas and then the repetition of those ideas, but in reverse. And the best way to explain it is really just to see it. So I want you to notice on this chart, you'll see... uh, Thoughts, the progression of thought moving forward, A, B, C, D, and then the mirrored reverse of those, D, C, B, A. So if this was a story, it could go like this. A, some children leave home on an adventure. B, their dog gets lost. C, they go searching for their dog everywhere. And then now we're going to go backwards. A, B, C, they're searching for their dog. Now C, Their parents arrive on the scene. B, they help find the dog. And then back to A, everyone arrives safely at home. Change the plot, but it's the same story. That's how storytelling works. There's a mirroring of the progression of information forward and then backward. That is what a chiasm is. So I want to show you Psalm 41 through the lens of a chiastic structure. Guys, these are everywhere in the Bible. This is just one little glimpse of it. And I'll, sh- I'll show you, I hope you can see why I chose to present this uh, in our journey of the Psalms. Even this summer, it's been here four or five times, and I've just waited till now. And I hope this is the right time. 
This is what I, what I see here. In verse 1, you see blessing. Verse 1 also, you see trouble. And then you find enemies. And then sickness in verses 3 and 4. Then enemies again, 5 through 8. Trouble, 9 through 12. And then we arrive back at the beginning with blessing in verse 13. So let's just retrace our steps. In verses 1 through 3, we have seen, A, the blessing of God on his people who care for the poor and the weak. B, the promise of deliverance from trouble. C, the assurance of protection from enemies. D, the confidence that God will sustain his people when they are sick. So that's how far we've come so far. So blessing, trouble, enemies, and sickness. Now, beginning in verse 4, we're going to go back to the beginning, finally arriving at blessedness. So if you thought that maybe those opening verses were a little bit utopian, like, I'm not sure King David lives in the same world as I do, then you didn't read them at face value. Because, like I said, the picture of blessedness presented here is not freedom from the storms of life, it's blessedness in them, happiness in God in them. So let's make our way back to the beginning. The first experience we see now in reverse order is sickness, where David left off. He sings both as the righteous man who had been gracious to the poor and also the one who is poor. His poverty is seen both in his physical condition and in his spiritual nature. He asks God, be gracious to me, heal my body. At the same time, he asks God for forgiveness of some sin he has committed. And of course, over these opening 40 chapters, many times we've seen David fighting physical sickness and sin sickness, some sickness that's a result of his sin, multiple times. And here he is once again. Next, we see the blessed man of Psalm 41 still has enemies. The word used to describe these enemies is the same one used as the kings and rulers of the world in Psalm 2 They gathered together to scheme against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. Of course, that would be David as the king of the people. Ultimately, that would be Christ, the king of all. And here that same word is used. These people are gathering around David, wishing for his ill. They've joined together to attack him. And in verse 6 through 8, the weapon of these enemies is, well, one of the deadliest weapons of Warfare, the tongue, the tongue. First, they utter empty words. These are lies that these so-called friends are speaking in order to get close to the king and to gather information. They're like people that are just brooding around the nurse's station in the ICU ward to gather information they might then use to their advantage. Verse 6 tells us they're gathering up not just information, but iniquity. And then they take everything that they learn about David's frail condition and they tell it abroad. They spread slander and lies everywhere they go. And what are they supposed to be doing in honor of the king? Blessing with their mouths. And instead we find them cursing, whispering. Um, And what they're whispering are things that they hope to come true of the old king when he's finally dead and gone. David believes that his enemies will not prevail over him. But David is still injured terribly by all of this. 
He's not just skating through life pretending this is not real and painful. And then finally we find trouble. The trouble in verse 1 didn't come with a specific name. But now he specifically names one of the most terminal troubles in human experience. The betrayal of a friend. A close friend. Even my close friend, David says, lifted his heel against me. The idea is that this friend has abandoned the psalmist but not just walked away, but actually crossed over to the side of his enemy. And as he crosses over, he lifts his heel so he can watch him go. And as we think about the heel of the enemy, don't you hear the ringing of Genesis 3.15? That one day the head of the seed of the woman would crush the, the head of the serpent. But what would the seed of that serpent do? It would bruise the head of the seed of the woman by his heel. The idea is that this friend has just totally abandoned the psalmist. And um, what a condition. He's sick. He is in the throes of despair. He's surrounded by enemies who want him to die. And now his closest friend has betrayed him. And it was this very verse that the Lord Jesus used on the night when he was betrayed. It's interesting how the story of blessing and serving the weak and the poor is all reflected on that night. There's some overlap of, of language here that is just superb, looking at John chapter 13 and Psalm 41. So let me just trace those steps. After Jesus had shared the Last Supper with his closest friends, he washed their feet as an act of service, or we might say he considered the weak. He said in John 13, 15, that he had given them an example so that they also should do just as he had done, right? So this is like the people of God are supposed to then serve one another in their low condition. Then he says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, just like Psalm 41, 1. And then Jesus actually uses Psalm 41 to speak of how one would soon betray him and lift his heel against him as he goes over to the side of the enemy. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus uses the words about service, the blessing of service, and this example of the person who's lifted his heel against him all to describe what he was experiencing with Judas Iscariot. The only difference is, in, David, in David's case in Psalm 41, he says, this is my close friend. Jesus just says, he who ate my bread, he who I've been close with. And so there you have the Psalms working in the real world, in the midst of brokenness, still fighting for faith, still walking by faith in the promises of God. And these verses have something to show us about what we're to do with our own brokenness, as well as the weight of the fall that we feel pressing down on our lives in so many different ways. What David does is remember and rehearses the promises of God as he endures the presence of brokenness. Each promise of God is meant for real life in the world. 
and has been tested by the people of God since the very beginning of time. And every one of God's promises are true. So whether your specific trial, whether the day of your trouble is sickness or enemies or surrounding circumstances or even things like stress or financial strain or relational loss, the Word of God isn't some detached thing. It is the living, breathing Word of God meant to bring us life, to instruct us how to trust in God through those times. To be the people who delight in the word of God. As Christians, a people who are convinced our sins are forgiven. And to now to receive the compassion that we've experienced in Christ and extend that to one another. Finally, in verses 10 to 13, we come to the final words of the first book of Psalms. And the melody just crescendos here. There is a doxology of confidence. Verses 10 to 13. The psalmist has pronounced this benediction over the righteous person. He's acknowledged the weight of the fall. And now he'll resolve these two tensions with the reality of pointing our attention to what God is faithful to do in the lives of his people, all while fixing our gaze on God. You see, at the beginning of this psalm, what he talked about was the blessedness that we experience as his people. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. But as his thoughts have progressed through this psalm and then backward, where is he ending up? Not just the blessing that we know, but the blessedness of God. That's the exclamation point here. You cannot wipe the smile off my face this week looking through these verses. Oh, it's so good. Okay. There's a whole lot here. Now, all I've got time to do is tell you about three things they tell us about how God works in the lives of his people, and then three things about God, and then we've got to move on. Um, before I mention these three things that it tells us about how God operates in the life of his people, let me say first, David experienced these things to be true in his life. These are reasons for confidence that he has in his God. Jesus could perfectly sing this psalm and experience these things as great David's greater son, which we looked at last week. And now as the people of God, these are things that you and I can sing because of Christ. Here's the first one. This is totally true. God delights in us. A lot of people have a really hard time believing that. David sings of it right here. God delights in us. David confidently sings how the enemies of Psalm 2 will not prevail over the blessed man of Psalm 1. And when he stands victorious over them, he will know that God delights in him. Brothers and sisters, one day you will stand victorious over the enemies of sin and sickness and death and the grave and Satan and the reason you will is because God delights in you. But not because of what you've done. He delights in you because of the blood of Christ which covers you. So when the Father sees you, he sees his beloved son, Jesus. And God delights in himself. And so when he looks at you, his heart is full of delight because you're covered in the blood of Christ. Precious and beloved. His smile is fixed 
on you. Second, God upholds us. David knows it's not his own strength that he stands in. He stands because God has upheld him in the battle and sustained him in the fight. It's not about his white-knuckle grip of, I'm going to conquer. No, it's his every step dependence upon the God who has given him victory. Third, God has set us in his presence forever. I, I, to me, this is the most sweet. For David, the presence of God is everything. Lord willing, first week of June next year, we'll get to Psalm 42, and we will see that he longs for the presence of God more than his next breath. For him, this is everything. He cries for it, pants for it. And the thing is that whether he feels it or not, David has positionally been set in the presence of God by faith. And haven't we? Whether you feel it or not, Christian, you will live in the presence of God today and forever in a crescendo of understanding. Hasn't the blood of Christ been shed that we might enter the presence of God with boldness and confidence to stand before the throne of grace? I think this is really good news. God delights in us. God upholds us. And we will forever be set in his presence. Now let me tell you who it is that's done these remarkable things on our behalf. Because this is where all these 41 chapters have led to. There are three reasons to bless our triune God and to magnify his name. To sing of his greatness. Each reason for praise is detailed in the names used for God or this one attribute of God listed in this verse. Very briefly, one, he is the Lord. The term used for Lord there is the sacred name of God. We first heard whispered on that mountaintop in Exodus chapter 2. Yahweh. I am that I am. He is the Lord and there is no other. Second. He is the God of Israel. When you hear that word, you're supposed to think of him being the God of covenant, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of David. Not some God of our own making, but the God who has revealed himself through time and history. That's who he is. And when you hear the God of Israel, you're meant to remember the covenant-keeping power of our God who has promised himself to you. And he's done that in and through Christ. He is our God. We are his people. And then third, he is the everlasting God. He is, the scripture says, from everlasting to everlasting. He's eternal. Kids, God has no birthday. He's the one who gave birth to all days. Okay, that's all I can say today. But listen. When we start the Ten Commandments in two weeks, where do we start with who God is? And so we might just come back and do Psalm 41 again, just these last few verses. That's not a threat. <laughs> He's unbelievable. That's part of why we gather together, to look at him together as his people. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 41. 
this song fits perfectly on his lips. Jesus, who considered the utter poverty of our condition. Jesus, who is the man of sorrows, who was betrayed by his own people, and even betrayed by one of his own disciples who dipped his hand in the same cup and lifted his heel against him. Jesus is the one who enemies gathered around as they whispered and wished for how to take his life from him. However, they could not take his life from him. He willingly laid it down. The Lord was his protector even in death. The Lord revived him to life again and set him not only in the Father's presence but at the Father's right hand to rule and reign with him forever. The Father delights in the Son. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. Jesus is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. The final verses of our psalm. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for the privilege it is to worship you through your word. I pray that we would be a people who look to Christ people who have received the compassion and mercy of Jesus, who are eager to share that mercy with the people around us, people who look to you and your promises in the midst of every trial and storm, and who stand with great confidence in every word that you have spoken as we look to Christ, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.